The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, part one of our discussion about the controversial life of Andrew Jackson. From the time he was born, Old Hickory was fighting for a better life. He took on the British first as a teenager and later as a renegade general. Never one to back down from a fight, he then went up against the traditional D.C. bureaucrats and won, changing the presidency forever. The turbulent and undeniably popular POTUS number 7, Andrew Jackson, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunt with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we'll open the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Andrew Jackson's life and his presidency is so important and so complicated, we're splitting the conversation into two parts. In this first episode, we're joined by Dr. Mark Cheatham, who is one of the nation's top experts on POTUS number 7. He's a professor of history at Cumberland University, where he also serves as project director of the Papers of Martin Van Buren. He's been busy writing and editing seven different books, including the award-winning Andrew Jackson, Southerner, and The Coming of Democracy, Presidential Campaigning in the Age of Jackson. He's also busy working on a study of the 1844 presidential election. Mark, thanks for joining us on American POTUS. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mark, we're so happy to have you here. Before we uh, turn to today's topic, uh, President Jackson, we want to start with what is admittedly an unfair question for you, and that is, why is it important to study and better understand the presidency I know it's a very broad question, but it's obviously very central to this podcast. So why do you think that's the case? Well, certainly in today's world, presidents serve as a symbol of the nation. They serve as a symbol of the United States. And that was true also during Jackson's time. In fact, you could make the argument that he is really the first U.S. president whom people saw as a symbol of, of the nation. Not that George Washington wasn't important. He also was symbolic. But I think Jackson wore that role in a very different way. And so when people thought of the United States during Jackson's time, much like they think of, of Donald Trump today, when they think of the United States, they thought of Andrew Jackson when, when they were looking at the nation. So how did you come to focus on the topic personally? I had a professor when I was an undergraduate who was one of the first, well, he always said he was one of the first interpreters at the Hermitage, which was is Jackson's home here in Nashville. He encouraged me to go work at the Hermitage uh, one summer, so I did. He didn't tell me that I had to wear the period clothing, uh, <laughs> which when you're when you're twenty twenty one years old is not that cool. Um, but but I was I was able to gain a wealth of knowledge and experience conducting tours of the Hermitage and. I was already a little bit interested in Jackson, but I became even more interested in him. Not as necessarily someone I wanted to emulate or someone who I thought was necessarily heroic, but as someone who was a transformative figure 
in U.S. political history. And so I was just fascinated and decided that I wanted to study him and his period. And 20 plus years later, here I am. Very good. Well, we certainly share that. I remember as a kid going to the Hermitage and I think a lot of my interest in presidential history came came from that visit. It's an amazing place. Let's step back for a second with with Jackson, and we know he looms very large in our history. But let's let's go to the beginning of his story, which he has an amazing childhood story. Can you tell us a bit about that childhood and how it helped him develop into the person we know? Jackson was born in 1767 on the North Carolina South Carolina border. Uh, Both states claim him, although Jackson always said that he considered South Carolina his native state. He was uh, born into a family that had recently immigrated into the United States. His father died around the time he was born. We're not exactly sure of the date. Jackson was born on March 15th of 1767, so his father died somewhere around that time. His mother and his two older brothers both died during the American Revolution. So by the time Jackson was a young adolescent. He had lost all of his immediate family members. And that was something that I think profoundly affected him. I think it cultivated in him an independence of thought and independence of living to some extent. But on the other hand, it also created in him, I think, a sense of longing for that family that he didn't have. And even though he had uncles and aunts and cousins living in the area that he grew up around, when he moved away, he really didn't talk to them very much or didn't write to them, didn't deal with them very much at all. Instead, what he did was he replaced his immediate family with different kinship networks. So he married into a very large kinship network. He and his wife, Rachel, would bring nieces and nephews and children of friends into their household. So I think Jackson was able to replace, to some extent, the immediate family that he lost in his childhood. So it's sort of that dichotomy of he's very independent, but like all of us as humans, he also craved that and longed for that intimacy and that familiarity that you have when you have family members around you. And that's really interesting. Also, though, you know, with the loss of those family members and his treatment at the hands of the British, do you think that led to this kind of fighter that we see as he develops into a, a mature adult? I do. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a historian, not a psychologist, but <laughs> a lot of scholars, <laughs> a lot of scholars have looked at Jackson and have talked about, you know, he has a, he does have a temper. He does hold grudges for very long times. And part of that may come from, you know, the anger and the sense of abandonment that he felt as a child. I think that's something that he probably was working through emotionally all the way up until his death. And of course, he didn't have the tools that we have today in terms of mental health to be able to uh, figure out what was going on with him internally and to try to, to try to address that. Right. Um, so he dealt with it in other ways. And those ways gave us some of the most dramatic moments of his life. I was going to say, he really made his name as a fighter. And I'm skipping over a good amount of history here, but America really heard of him first at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815, right? So that, that was an amazing victory over the British when you compare American to British casualties. It's really quite phenomenal. How did he come to get that command? Well, Jackson, it's interesting. Jackson doesn't have any formal military training. He may have participated as a courier during the revolution. That's sort of murky as to what his involvement was. Almost certainly he wasn't fighting, or if he was, it would have been very informally and very infrequently. 
so he, he doesn't grow up being trained in the military. He doesn't really have any military experience per se, although uh, growing up where he did both uh, in the Waxhaws region of, the South, of South Carolina and then also when he moves to Nashville, he is surrounded by Native Americans and white settlers and Native Americans did fight one another. So he probably almost certainly gained experience that way. But in terms of military training, formal military training, he doesn't have any. So when the War of 1812 breaks out, Jackson, like a lot of uh, the leaders and communities, organized uh, a militia. And in Jackson's case, he actually starts to march them down into what was then Mississippi, or what is now Mississippi, what was then uh, a territory. And he runs out of money. The governor of Tennessee doesn't give him enough money to, to complete his mission. So Jackson has to march his men back to Tennessee. So that's in 1812 or early 1813. Later in 1813, he leads another group of militia down into Alabama and fights what we call the Creek War which is a war against the Creek Indian. He's very successful there, and that leads to him gaining a formal appointment in the U.S. Army as a brigadier general in mid-1814. And that is sort of what launches him into his U.S. Army career. And so for the rest of 1814, Jackson is focused on the British. He's focused on the Spanish uh, who were inhabiting Florida. Jackson believed that the Spanish were allowing the British to stage military maneuvers in Florida. So Jackson invades Spanish Florida, and that causes big ruckus, as you can imagine. Yes. And then he eventually moves across the Gulf Coast to New Orleans. And, of course, on January 8th of 1815, fights that infamous battle against the British. And what's, what's interesting about the Battle of New Orleans is that, you know, there's so much mythology that surrounds it. Jackson's victory there, and I say Jackson's victory as if he's the only person. Certainly, you know, he has men fighting with him who are, who are doing most of the work. But Jackson and his men's victory really comes down to a couple of factors. One of the factors is that the British had planned poorly. Jackson and his men had set up behind a fortification that gave them an open field in which they could clearly see, once the fog had lifted that morning, they could clearly see the British, and they could just pick the British off. So that was poor planning on, on the part of the British. There were some British troops who were supposed to bring ladders to get over the fortifications. They didn't bring the ladders. And so there's a little bit of luck there as well, in the sense that if the ladders had, had come forward like they were supposed to, would the British, who had overwhelming numbers, been able to take the American position there? You know, would Jackson have been the one who would have been shot and killed on the field of battle instead of his adversary on the other side? Very interesting. So, I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from Jackson and the American forces at, at New Orleans, but it was a combination of factors. It wasn't just Jackson exerting his strength of will. It wasn't just that the United States forces there were superior. There were a lot of different factors that led to the victory there at New Orleans. Certainly a very, very important victory in our kind of nation's psyche, too, from a war in which we had often not done that well. You mentioned a couple of times there the, the battles with the Creeks and with the Seminoles. And we know when he's president, of course, the Indian Removal Act, Trail of Tears, that very difficult um, history of that. What can you tell us about Jackson's complicated kind of combative relationship with Native Americans? Jackson, his relationship with, with the Native Americans was one in which he saw them as, frankly, uncivilized and inferior. You know, he used the language of his time, which many people used, many white people used called them savages. He probably would have ranked them 
slightly above uh, African Americans, but still would have considered them inferior. And I think part of that is that Jackson was a product of his time. It was a time of racism against not just African Americans, but against indigenous peoples. And so Jackson was a, a product of that. He reflected that in many ways. As I talked about earlier, he grew up in an area uh, in the Waxhaws and then later on as an adult in Nashville where Native American attacks against white settlers and white settlers attacks against Native Americans were, were frequent. And so he sees them as the enemy. That doesn't mean that he's not above using them. So, for example, during the Creek War, there are some Creek Indians who actually ally with Jackson. They're Cherokee Indians who ally with Jackson and who help him defeat the opposing Creek forces. And interestingly enough, Jackson, when he's negotiating treaties, oftentimes would take the land of his Indian allies from them, even though they had helped him win or, or defeat the, the Native American enemies that they were facing. So it's a relationship in which Jackson sees himself as the representation I think, of white America, of the white United States. Jackson also sees Native Americans as a threat to national security, or at least that's how he frames it. Uh, you know, he puts them in the same league as the Spanish and the British. They're enemies of the state, so to speak. You want to think about it, think about it that way. And frankly, he also wants their land. Sometimes he wants it for himself. So, for example, following the Creek War, Jackson obtains land in Huntsville, Alabama, or around what's now Huntsville, Alabama. He obtains land around what's now Pensacola, Florida, and some of that he uses for himself. Some of it he convinces other people to buy. Some of it he tells his friends and allies, hey, we have all this cheap land that's suddenly available. And in doing that, what Jackson is doing, again, for himself and for his friends and for the larger white population, is he's creating what we now know as the Deep South, the Cotton South, because that area, a lot of that area becomes really the foundation of what, during the antebellum period, is the, the bastion of African-American enslavement and that growing cotton boom that fuels the nation's economy. Well, so much goes back to Jackson. And though this combative relationship with Native Americans, at the same time, does, does he not adopt a Native American child? Well, that, that is a, a great question. Yeah. So during the Creek War, Jackson sends three... Creek boys back to his wife, Rachel. The one you're referring to is Lincoya, but there are two others. There's Theodore and, and Charlie. And what's really interesting about these three young boys, Theodore and Charlie very quickly disappear from the historical records. They very likely died at a young age. Lincoya will live until he's around 18 years old. He actually dies during the election year of 1828. But what, what, what's interesting about it is that when Jackson sends Lincoya, He's the one we know the most about. When he sends Lincoya back to Rachel, Jackson says, I feel an unusual sympathy for him because Lincoya had been orphaned, you know, just like Jackson had been. But whether Jackson realized it or not, the reason that Lincoya was orphaned was because Jackson's men had killed his family. And when you look at Jackson's treatment of Lincoya, and when you look at other white Southern men's treatment of Native American boys or Native American children that they quote-unquote adopted, they didn't really see them as family. They didn't see them as kin. They weren't treating them in the same way. They were treating them more like, Jackson uses the term pets to indicate like sort of their subserviency. Some of them treated them as slaves, as enslaved people. So it's, 
even when you look at that, you, you think, well, you know, he must have cared for Linkoy. He must have had some, you know, like you said, an unusual sympathy for him. Yes. But in reality, Jackson is treating them much like he treated the enslaved people who lived at his home, the Hermitage and at other homes. He, he is treating him really in some ways symbolically, going back to the idea of symbolism, he's treating him symbolically as a representation of who he was as a conqueror, who he was as a plantation owner, who he was as a dominant male patriarch in Southern society. A quick break, just to say we'd really like to see your comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes. On Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, just search American POTUS, and we'll show up there in the search results. And if you like what you're hearing, we would be most grateful if you could spread the word and recommend the podcast to your friends and family. So Jackson builds up that image, he builds up that power base, and I know, again, we're skipping over a lot of really interesting history, but he was elected president. He, almost in 1824, very controversial election, 1820, 1828, he's elected, riding a wave of popular support, kind of seen, of, seen as ushering in a, a new age of democracy, in a way, for the common man. How did he, this planter, slave owner, obviously quite wealthy man, how did he come to be the standard bearer? or this fundamental democratic change in our society? Well, it's interesting because I think a lot of people see Jackson as being the standard bearer for democracy, that he's the one mm-hmm. who is pushing for democracy, leading the charge. But really, he's just taking advantage of what's happening. Between the end of the War of 1812 and 1828, you have a number of states who change their voting qualifications so they remove property requirements, property-owning requirements, or they remove tax-paying requirements so that you have more white men who have access to the vote. Again, not women, not African-Americans, not Native Americans, but white men. And Jackson and his supporters take advantage of that. And the way that Jackson frames it is that he frames himself as being a man of the people, as a man who is there to represent the democratic voice of the people. And a lot of that really comes from that 1824 election that he lost in a very controversial way. And I won't get into all the details. You know, some of your political wonks out there would want me to, but (laughs) just to skim the surface, Jackson gets the most votes, the most electoral votes in the 1824 election, but he doesn't get the required number to become president. So he gets a plurality, but not a majority. And so the Constitution said that In that case, the top three electoral vote-getters had their names submitted to the U.S. House, and the House would vote by state, so each state would receive one vote. They would vote for who would become president. Well, Jackson had won the most popular votes, won the most electoral votes, he had won the most states, but when the House voted, he loses to John Quincy Adams. And the way that Jackson and his supporters interpret it, Adams and Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House, had colluded to keep Jackson from becoming president. And the confirmation of this collusion came about a week after the House votes Adams into the presidency when Adams appoints Henry Clay as his secretary of state. And so Jackson and his allies call this the corrupt bargain. And so what they essentially are saying is that Clay and Adams bartered the presidency. You know, Adams becomes president. 
Clay becomes Secretary of State, and at that time, Secretary of State was considered the avenue to become president in the future. And at, uh, at Jackson and his allies used this to their advantage. So between 24 and 28, they talk over and over and over about how the will of the people had been thwarted, that Jackson was clearly the choice of the people, yet Adams and Clay had stolen that election from the people. And Jackson and his allies used that to their advantage to frame Jackson as the democratic choice, the choice of the people. And so the 28 election is really viewed as a, an election of revenge for Jackson and the people to, to win back the presidency from the corrupt elite men like Adams and Clay. And Jackson wins, and he wins overwhelmingly. And the percentage of eligible voters who cast a vote between 24 and 28 doubles, and most of those votes go to Jackson. And so, again, Jackson is not necessarily pushing for democratic change, but he sees what's happening, and he takes advantage of that and uses that rhetorically and politically to get himself into the presidency. And as a native Kentuckian, I will have to say on behalf of Henry Clay, he always said there was no such bargain, but uh, we'll leave that to our listeners of the history sake. So so he's elected president, and he, he comes into office, and this the feelings toward Jackson, love him, hate him, really uh, leads to the development of the kernels of what become our modern political parties. Is that not, is that not the case? Absolutely. Yes. So, so Jackson's victory in 28 helps crystallize really two opposing sides. You have the Jacksonians who will call themselves Democrats. And then you have the Adams clay men who will eventually coalesce into what becomes the Whig party Mm -hmm. in 1834. And that Whig party stays around until it falls apart, mainly over the issue of slavery. And then you see the development of the Republican party, right? That's correct. Yeah. So the Whigs are sort of the forerunner to the Republican party and the switch happens between Mm -hmm. 1852 when the Whigs start to fall apart. The Republicans emerge really in 1854-55 and then of course Abraham Lincoln is the Republican who wins in, in 1860. So as as Jackson is is doing is doing this and moving forward with his agenda in the White House who were his main political allies and operatives? Oh, he had a lot. Um <laughs> So I'll, I'll limit myself to okay. the ones I think are probably the most important. All right. If you think about between 24 and 28, Jackson has to figure out how to win the presidency. I mean, he can talk all he wants about being a man of the people, needing you know to gain revenge for the people. But he was a politician, and he was a very savvy politician, but he was not a political operative. He had served in, in the, for example, he served in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate in the late 1790s were less than a year in each chamber. He came back into the Senate in the early 1820s, served about two and a half years. But he, so he was, he had a little bit of congressional experience, but he was not a, he was not a political operative. So he needs people around him who are. So he turns to people like Martin Van Buren, who's from New York, who had created what becomes the model for the Democratic Party in Albany, New York and who then brings that experience to the Jacksonian coalition that becomes the Democratic Party. Jackson turns also to someone like John C. Calhoun, uh, who, interestingly enough, was John Quincy Adams's vice president between 1825 and the election of 1828. So at the very same time that Adams was president and was fighting against Jackson, you know, campaigning against him, 
you have his vice president Calhoun working for Jackson. So it, it's it was an odd situation, I think, probably at dinner time when they got together. <laughs> so you have Van Buren and Calhoun, uh, who represent. So Van Buren represents, you know, the northern constituency. You have Calhoun, who represents the old southern coastal constituency. And then you have Jackson, who represents what they would have called the West, what we would call the Upper South now. And so that really is the nucleus of their of the Jacksonian coalition that becomes the Democratic Party. And then once Jackson becomes president, there are a number of men who are helping him. Van Buren continues to help him. Jackson and Calhoun have a falling out. But Jackson will bring in people like Francis P. Blair and Amos Kendall, who are two Western uh, newspaper editors who come to Washington. Blair will start the Washington Globe, which becomes the main Democratic newspaper for the next several decades. Kendall will eventually find his way into the Treasury Department and will do a lot to help Jackson in terms of patronage and putting into place people around the country who are important to supporting Jackson. Those are some of the key operatives. You, you could also talk about someone like John Eaton, who was one of Jackson's best friends. They had served together in the War of 1812. Eaton essentially serves as, as Jackson's campaign manager. They didn't call him that at the time, but he serves as Jackson's campaign manager in 1824 and 1828. And then Jackson puts him into his cabinet as Secretary of War. So you have people like that who are also there with Jackson who are helping to further his agenda, which was states' rights and Indian removal, you know, fighting the bank and those types of things. Mm -hmm. And Mark, on the other side of that question, who were some of his biggest enemies during the presidency? Some of Jackson's biggest enemies, of course, Henry Clay. Jackson and Clay have a running feud till Jackson dies in 1845. Clay will live into the early 1850s. Uh, the two men do not like each other. And part of it, a large part of it really stems from the, the so-called corrupt bargain. John C. Calhoun, who goes from being John Quincy Adams as vice president to being Andrew Jackson's vice president. Again, a very interesting trajectory there for Calhoun. Calhoun and Jackson have a falling out and are at odds with each other really for the rest of their lives as well. Jackson believed that Calhoun had not supported him when Jackson invaded Spain, uh, Spanish Florida for a second time during the late 18-teens. Jackson believed Calhoun betrayed him there. Calhoun gets wrapped up, and there's a whole controversy about John Eaton and his wife and whether they were having an affair. So Calhoun finds himself on the wrong side of that. Whole the, dispute. Uh, the Petticoat right. Affair, right? Is that the name of that? The Petticoat Affair, right. yeah, which is, I mean, you could do a whole podcast just on yeah, that. It's right. so fascinating. All the intricacies and what comes out of that. So Clay and Calhoun are two of, of probably Jackson's fiercest enemies and, and people that he likes dislikes for a very long time. And then it's interesting because some of the people who Jackson considered close to him eventually wind up uh, parting ways with him and joining the Whigs. So a couple of Tennesseans, for example, Hugh Lawson White and John Bell, uh, who were good Jackson friends, good Jackson allies. By the end of his second term, they had gone into the Whig Party and were working against Jackson. And I think that's one of the things that uh, probably a lot of Americans recognize about Jackson is that he could be a difficult person to get along with. And if you were friends with him, you know, he would be very loyal. But if, if he thought you were being disloyal to him, he would cut you off. And I'm sure that working with him was very difficult because you were probably always concerned, am I going to say something? Am I going to do something that's going to lead to me 
being on the outs with him and then finding myself, you know, out of the inner circle. Well, you mentioned John Calhoun a couple of times and, and part of their falling apart was over the nullification crisis in South Carolina. Is that the case? And, and can you briefly summarize that whole crisis and how Jackson handled it? The nullification crisis uh, really began in 1828 over South Carolina's opposition to the tariff. Tariffs are taxes on imported goods that are paid, in this case, by American citizens. And so you have South Carolinians, and there were other Southerners as well, who were upset because they believed that because the Southern states tended to import more goods, that they were paying more taxes. And nobody likes to pay taxes. So South Carolinians, a, a group of South Carolinians, are upset about the 1828 tariff, and Calhoun is one of those. And so he writes an essay in which he talks about how states have the right to nullify or void federal laws. And the natural progression of that is that if the federal government tried to enforce those laws, then those states could secede. They could leave the union. Because the way that Calhoun and others looked at it is that the states had voluntarily joined the union, and so they could voluntarily leave the union if they chose to do so. So, again, Calhoun is Jackson's vice president, and they're having all these issues related to the first Seminole War and the Eaton affair, the Petticoat affair. And so then Calhoun, and Jackson probably knew this already, but it comes out that Calhoun has written this essay and has essentially said, that states can leave the Union voluntarily. Well, Jackson's military career had cultivated in him a sense of nationalism, had cultivated in him a sense of unionism. And even though he was a Southerner himself, and he, he and Calhoun probably were closer in thought than, than they realized if they had sat down and talked it out, Jackson has a nationalism that Calhoun had rejected. And so, in any case, Congress passes another tariff in 1832, and this time, South Carolinians decide to put their foot down. And so after the tariff is passed, they nullify the tariff. And so they say, essentially, we're not going to pay the tariff. And Jackson, who by that point, by the time he responds, had won re-election, he'd won his second term, comes out with the nullification proclamation. And essentially, he says what South Carolinians were doing was treason and that he was willing to use force, if necessary, to collect those taxes and if South Carolina insisted on leaving the Union, he would make sure that that didn't happen. And so essentially what you have is a threat of civil war occurring during the winter of 1832-33. And the resolution of all this, and it's sort of ironic in some ways, is that Henry Clay, whom Jackson didn't like, and John C. Calhoun, whom Jackson blamed in part for what was even happening in South Carolina, the two of them are really the orchestrators of a compromised tariff that slowly lowers the tariff rates and, and allows both sides to stay face. It allows South Carolinians to say, well, we stood up to the federal government. We got what we wanted. We're going to get a lower tariff. And it allows the Jackson administration to say, well, we stood up to these threats of secession, mm -hmm. and now South Carolina is going to have to pay the tariff like they were supposed to. And Jackson's involved to some extent in, in what happens in Congress, but it's really Clay and Calhoun who are driving the compromise and who, who make sure that the United States doesn't fall apart in the Civil War in mm -hmm. 1833. Wow. And that's, I think, one reason that Abraham Lincoln kept the portrait of Andrew Jackson in the White House, even though Lincoln was an ardent Whig and later Republican. 
because Jackson, in his own way, stood up to the secessionist and stood up for union. Uh, so really, yeah, it is ironic. Yeah, yeah. Lincoln saw Clay as his hero growing up. I mean, he was Clay was his political hero. But he does when he's facing the secession crisis in the winter of sixty sixty one. He goes back to Jackson's nullification proclamation and says Jackson had, even though I didn't agree with him politically, he had the basic outline right that the federal government has to be superior to the state governments when it comes to these types of issues. Moving on to one of the other issues that really dominated his presidency, and that was his opposition to the National Bank. Why why was he so opposed to the National Bank, and do you think that his ultimate success in destroying it led to the economic downturn that, that plagued particularly the Van Buren administration? Jackson's opposition to the bank stems from a couple of things. Uh, one is he had had bad luck with banks before. And again, this is this is something that your economic and, and, and political people who are listening would want much more detail on. But essentially, banks then were not like they are now. Banks today are protected by the federal government. You know, your deposits up to a certain amount are protected. They're guaranteed. That was not true then. And so Jackson had a couple of bad experiences when it came to bankruptcy and, with, and dealing with debts and that sort of thing. So he doesn't view banks favorably. And then he also received word early in his first term that the National Bank, so the National Bank, uh, it was the second National Bank of the United States. There had been a previous one that Alexander Hamilton had put together. His second bank of the United States was a, was a mixture of private and public money. So, so there was some government deposits in it, but there were also private investors. And so Jackson received word that the bank president, Nicholas Biddle, had been using the bank's money to try to defeat him in 1828. And again, Jackson holds grudges. You know, he, he is someone who does not, uh, does not take these things lightly. So there's an investigation, and essentially the investigation says, no, this is not true. But Jackson believes it. And so he kind of waits. He bides his time. He has other things he's trying to accomplish. And then things sort of explode in 1832 when Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and some others try to push through an early recharter or renewal of the bank's charter. So the bank's charter was supposed to end in 1836. And so Clay and Webster and others look around and say, it's an election year in 32. Maybe we can use this issue to help Henry Clay, who was running against Jackson for the presidency. Maybe we can use this to help Clay win the election. Because if Jackson vetoes our, our bill to get the, the bank rechartered early, of course the people are going to be upset about it. Well, that's not quite what happened. And in fact, what happened was Congress passes the bank recharter bill and Jackson vetoes it. And instead of it being a negative for Jackson, he uses that to show that he is standing up to corporate interest. Mm -hmm. And so really his second term, because he does win a second term, his second term is spent fighting the bank, trying to figure out ways to get the government money out and into other banks. And so your part of your question was, does this affect Van Buren? Is, is, is this bank war that Jackson fights, does it lead to the downturn in the economy that affects Van Buren's presidency? And the answer is, I think it partly does. Mm -hmm. There are lots of other factors. Some of them are international factors. There are things going on with Britain and loans to the United States. There's silver in Mexico that's affecting. There are all different, all kinds of different factors affecting what's going on. But I think Jackson's bank war does illustrate that the nation's economy is fragile. 
and a president, like we talked about earlier, a president who takes decisive action, who tries to lead the nation, in this case, perhaps in the wrong way, does have dramatic effects that will then trickle down to the to the average American. So it's not, as a president, when you're making these types of decisions, you may think about things on the macro level, but the effects are going to be felt on the micro level. And certainly that was true following the bank war. A quick break, just to remind you who's behind this new show. The brand new National Museum of American Presidents is responsible for the podcast in cooperation with the Center for Presidential History. You can reach us on all the social platforms out there. Just search American POTUS and we'll show up there in the results. Let us know what you think about this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Now, shifting gears just for a second, the story of uh, Andrew's marriage to Rachel looms very large in his life. What can you tell us about her, about their marriage, and about how her death, um, he blamed her death on his political rivals? It's a fascinating story. When Jackson moves to Nashville uh, in the late 1780s, he boards with Rachel's mother, who was a widow at that point. Rachel is married to a man by the name of Louis Robard. She's young, vivacious, flirtatious. Jackson's a young man. He's 21 at the time. And they apparently have a chemistry. Now, whether it goes beyond a friendship, does it go into anything romantic or sexual, we don't know. But Rachel's husband, Louis, thought there was something going on. And so he actually threatens Jackson. And uh, what happens from that is that Lewis eventually leaves. He leaves town. And then Andrew and Rachel go down into what was Spanish territory, what's now Natchez, Mississippi. They go down there. And when they come back, they tell everybody that they got married. Well, come to find out, Rachel was not divorced. Lewis had gone back to Kentucky, had not divorced her like Andrew and Rachel said that he did. And a couple of years down the road, Rachel and Andrew received notice that she now has been officially divorced. And so whether they got married in Natchez or not, they have to get legally married, which they do. And so all, all of this leads later in Jackson's political career to people accusing Rachel of being a bigamist, being married to two men at the same time, which was probably true, and accuses Jackson of being an adulterer, which, you know, all legality aside, was true. And so Jackson takes great umbrage at this. You know, he was someone like many white men in the South at that time who defended you know, their, their, their woman's honor, whether it was a wife or a daughter or a mother. And so he takes, he takes great offense to this. And so when Rachel dies in December of 1828, right after Jackson wins the presidency, Jackson is grief-stricken, and he blames other people for her death. You know, he, he says it's the, it was the travails of the campaign. It was, you know, all the stress and all these other factors that go into it. Well, the reality is that Rachel was 61. She was overweight. She had a history of heart problems, and she may have been stressed. Uh, she did not want to go to Washington. She was not looking forward to being the first lady and having to socialize with the people that she considered uh, heathenistic and immoral. And so all of that may have contributed to, to her having a heart attack and then dying from it, but that's not how Jackson framed it. And so... You know, his, his emotional state when he becomes president is, is not great, honestly. And I think that's part of what precipitates that whole petticoat affair is that when he's defending John and Margaret Eaton and their marriage, you know, accusations, accusations of them having had an affair, 
he probably is projecting onto them some of his own emotions and feelings about his relationship with Rachel. So again, it's I'm not a psychologist, so psychoanalyzing Jackson, you know, 200 years later is difficult to do, but some things seem pretty obvious, and to me it seems pretty obvious that he is projecting onto the eat some of what he and Rachel had experienced. Sure. So if you were to meet Jackson on the street today, I mean, this is a man who walked around much of his life with, what, one or two bullets still in his body from the, <laughs> the large number of duels he <laughs> fought. What would strike us most about his looks, his personality. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, the fact that he he was, and, and we don't think about this, he was sick, really, from the War of 1812 on. He had health problems. He, he suffered from dysentery, so that's the severe diarrhea for much of the rest of his life. He did have two bullets in him. One of them stays with him until he dies. I mean, he is someone, and, and because of that, because, lead, because bullets were made out of lead, he probably is suffering from lead poisoning. The medicines they use sometimes did more harm than good, as we know now. So all that to say that he was a very sick man, and part of his personality, part of his prickliness as, as he gets older, may be due to old age, but it also may be because he just didn't feel good because he was so sick. So if we saw him, you know, I, I would imagine if he were healthy, he would be still thin. He was tall and thin, so we would have seen that. He would have those piercing eyes. You would see sort of the set of his jaw and his determination. That's how we probably imagine him. In reality, again, depending on when we're talking about meeting him, he probably would have been very sick and probably would have been more frail looking than we, than we imagine him to be. I still would not have challenged him in any way. No, 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 absolutely not. He's not the guy. <laughs> and he shows that during the presidency. I mean, he, he has he has a couple of men, someone who tries to assassinate him, someone who either tweaks his nose or tries to punch him. And Jackson goes after both of those men and tries to beat them to death. And so that tells you that even in his physical condition at his age, he still was someone who had had the fire in his belly. And really, that was, I mean, his entire life, right? From when he was a youngster all the way to the end. He had a, to your point, he had a fire in his belly. He did, absolutely. Mark, this has been fantastic, and we have a quick round of American POTUS quickfire Q&A. Are you game for it? These are, yep. these are just kind of a series of, of quick, fun questions that kind of give our listeners a, a little more of a look into Andrew Jackson. Right. Alan, oh, I, Alan you can play along, too. Ready. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Past or present, who do you think his favorite president would be? Mark, you're first. I would say Teddy Roosevelt because he represented that manliness. Yeah, you beat me to the gun on that. I think it'd have to be Teddy, maybe uh, the uh, some of the elements of Reagan, you know, out in the ranch and all that, the toughness. Chopping yeah, wood. Yeah, that's right, right. But definitely Teddy. Mm. Mark, what's your favorite quote of his? It actually comes from the 1832 bank veto message, and I'm taking part of it out, so imagine some ellipses in here, but... The quote is, we can at least take a stand against any prostitution of our government to the advancement of the few at the expense of the many. And if you wanted to think about Jackson being a Democrat, you know, both little D and big D, this is the quote that would summarize that perspective, I think. Mine would have to be near the end of his life. He said, my only regret is not shooting Henry Clay and hanging John Calhoun. Because he didn't kill enough people. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> uh, what would you say was the, was the you know one of one of the big stories of his presidency, both both 
uh, being elected and then during his presidency was the media and they were kind of against him a little bit. Would you would you say the media was more contentious during his presidency than they are maybe today that we all think today? I think the media then was very nasty. The 1828 election was extremely, extremely nasty, probably nastier than, well, pretty much any other election we've had. So I, don't, I think, you know, compared to today, I think they were willing to go, in terms of the mainstream media, they were willing to go places that maybe the mainstream media today is not willing to go. But I think what's different now is that you have a media that is more prevalent, you have more avenues, more outlets, and you have a media that has a more expansive reach. I, I agree. If you look at that election in 1828, but if you also look at others, I'm, I have a little bit of knowledge of the election of 1860, absolutely vicious press. So I think we have a tendency nowadays to think it's the worst ever. I don't believe that's the case. So in, in today's political landscape, the way the Democratic Party is and the Republican Party is, would you say he would still be a Democrat or would he be a Republican? It depends on the issue. So that's a very political answer, of course. But it really does <laughs> depend. I'll, I'll just give you uh, one of each. So on religion, I think he would be a Democrat. He was someone who believed in religious freedom, who believed in separation of church and state, a more ecumenical view of religion. Uh, so I think he would definitely fit within the democratic description today. If it came down to race, again, thinking of him as he was at the time, if it comes down to race, ethnicity, those types of issues, I think he would be a Republican today. I think he would be a Jacksonian. There you go. That's a good answer. <laughs> good answer. Good political answer, Alan. <laughs> what would you say would be the biggest do-over of his presidency? If he had to do things over in his presidency, which would mean admitting that he made a mistake, which is hard to believe, <laughs> but yeah. I think he probably would have handled the bank war a little bit differently. I think looking at what happens after the fact and how many problems it causes the nation down the road. I mean, the depression that comes after Jackson really lasts until the early 1840s. I think if he had to do over realistically, he probably would go back and change his decisions when it comes to that. I think I'd have to say, don't have John C. Calhoun as your vice president. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I like that. (laughs) Next question. He was famous for his temper, but did he have a sense of humor as well? Was he equally funny? I don't think he was equally funny compared to his temper, <laughs> uh, but he did seem to have a sense of humor. There's a story, and again, when you get into some of these stories, you have to wonder how much they're true, but there's a story about when he was, after he left the Wax Hawes and he goes to uh, North Carolina, or South Carolina, then North Carolina, he invites a couple of women of ill repute to a fancy ball and seems to enjoy the ruckus that he causes as a result. You know, I'm just imagining him cackling in the corner watching what's happening uh, with the elites there. So I think he definitely did have a sense of humor, but I think his temper probably was more prevalent and more dominant when it came to his personality. That's good to hear. In thinking about this question, I didn't have anything. I I really can't even imagine imagine him like telling a joke. <laughs> telling a joke, yeah. So that, that's good to know. <laughs> Three kind of tough presidents that we've had. Andrew Jackson, obviously, Rutherford Hayes, and Theodore Roosevelt. Who was tougher? Well, I, obviously, I have to say Jackson. But I do think, you know, of those three, he definitely is because of what we talked about earlier. He's, he has the physical illness he suffers from. He has bullets. He has this emotional trauma from his family dying when he's younger, Rachel dying. But in all of that... Even though he has his irrational moments, he actually is a very calculating political strategist. 
uh, when he's president and even afterwards. And so I think that says something to his stamina and his fortitude that he's able to overcome all those physical ailments and, and still persist. I think it's a close one. I, I agree. Certainly Jackson is going to be you know tied at number one, but and nothing against Rutherford Hayes, but you look at Teddy Roosevelt and and the, the exploits in the West, the exploits the Spanish-American War, the toughness he showed politically, the emotional trauma he had with his mother and his wife dying on the exact same day, uh, all those things, a pretty tough dude. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put him on the pedestal right beside Mr. Jackson. What would have been his Secret Service code name? Well, obviously, it would have to have been Old Hickory. I was thinking Butt Kicker. but old hickory is probably better next question what was his most impressive skill that had nothing to do with the presidency oh man um so i talked earlier about his military leadership and i don't know if that's a skill per se but it's always impressed me that for someone who doesn't have formal military training he he seems to have a an intuitive sense of what to do when it comes on the battlefield, you know, and the consequences are terrible for the people who are suffering from it. And we recognize that, but the fact that he's able to seemingly win pretty much every battle that he's in, uh, and oftentimes in a decisive way, says something about his leadership skills. You stole my answer. I mean, he, he, <laughs> he kind of had that natural leadership, right? Like men just naturally followed mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what Mark said earlier too. You think about the times he's living in, yeah, and knowing we can all be in those times and not necessarily recognize we are. And Jackson took advantage of that. He recognized it. He led it, and became the man he was because of that that ability to recognize it. Yeah. So I have a few questions about his personal guilty pleasures. Mark, what what were his favorite foods? I have no idea. I actually <laughs> tried to find something that uh, the answer for this one and the favorite drink, and I could not find anything. I think I think he liked so to I eat bullets. So I think is that right? <laughs> <laughs> he did enjoy a good beverage, yeah, though. Didn't drink he? The, the blood of his political yeah, rivals. Exactly. Right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what about bad habits? What were some of his bad habits that we know of? I am inferring a lot from this story, but I'll go ahead and tell it. So when, when Jackson, when, when his funeral is held at the Hermitage, there are some students here from Cumberland University where I teach who go to the funeral. And one of them records that at the funeral, there is this interruption by a parrot who <laughs> curses right in the middle. So you imagine this very somber, solemn occasion. You know, the hero of New Orleans has passed away. And in the quietness, you have this parrot just bursting out with these curse words. And then you hear a squawk and the parrot is not heard from anymore. (laughs) And so, you know, again, I'm inferring from this. Maybe the parrot picked up the the language from other people, but I like to think he might have picked it up from Jackson. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's great. So so Jackson's cuss jar would have been pretty full. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, not when Rachel was alive, but maybe after she died. She was pretty pious herself. <laughs> so what would you say Jackson did for fun? He loved horse racing. This was something that very early on he got involved in when he moved to Tennessee. He owns horses throughout his life, has a pretty extensive stable. He raced, Well, he doesn't personally race the horses, but he has, he has jockeys. Oftentimes they're enslaved jockeys who will ride the horses, and he would gamble on the outcome. 
And in fact, one of the most famous duel he's involved in, the one with Charles Dickinson, actually originates from a horse race where Jackson felt like he wasn't being paid the, the winnings that he should have been paid in a timely manner. And it, it, it explodes into this larger issue that leads to Jackson shooting and killing Charles Dickinson. So that was something, that particular case wasn't necessarily for fun, but he loved to race horses. Okay, we've talked a lot about him being the first president of the people. So if Twitter had existed, would he have used it? And what would his handle have been? Well, I definitely think he would have used it. And, you know, the unoriginal answer is that his Twitter handle would be at Old Hickory. But maybe it would have been, you know, maybe something like at Clay's Daddy or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You can't beat that. That's perfect. Yeah, Clay's Daddy. Well, just to say thank you, Mark. Uh, you know, a fascinating present. You you lent so much um, enlightenment to us about Andrew Jackson. Uh, as a student of history, a student of the presidency, Jackson looms large. Obviously, extraordinarily controversial today, but he certainly left an imprint on this nation. And we thank you for joining us and giving us your thoughts on a really, really important uh, figure in our our nation's history. Thanks for having me. Just a reminder to click on part two of our look into the life and presidency of Andrew Jackson. We spent some time at Jackson's beloved estate, the Hermitage, where the president and CEO of this amazing historic site took us on a private tour and shared some fascinating tales. That's on part two of our look into Andrew Jackson's complicated presidential legacy. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents in cooperation with the Center for Presidential History, located at Southern Methodist University. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau, and original music score by Jonathan Clark. A friendly reminder to like us on social media, just search American POTUS, and we'll show up there in the search results. Finally, we like to let our presidents have the last word, so we leave you with one of Andrew Jackson's most prudent thoughts. Americans are not a perfect people, but... We are called to a perfect mission.